Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Hey, today's exciting, uh, not just because it's the Super Bowl, but we are starting a brand new series here at church, and uh, I am really, really excited about this series. Uh, We are going to be going through a book of the Bible, going through the book of James, and uh, I was talking to some folks last week who've been coming to the church for a little bit, and they're like, hey, you guys keep doing all these like topical sermons about like stuff that you think people need to hear. Do you ever like just go through a book of the Bible, like real Christians? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, for sure. We're going to do that soon. Uh, So here we are uh, going through a book of the Bible, the book of James, and uh, uh, if, uh, if you've never been a part of a church that's done this before, uh, it's, it is a bit of a, a movement now to topically preach based on what you think people need to hear. Uh, but exp- uh, expository preaching or expository study of, of a book of the Bible is really a good thing for us. Uh, expository just means we're going to go through kind of line by line, verse by verse, topic by topic, and, and we're not going to allow our circumstance to dictate what we're talking about. We're going to allow the Bible to tell us what we're supposed to talk about today. Um, I like to think of it like this. It's... Um, It's proactive study instead of reactive study. Um, Or if you're like a, you know, an essential oil hippie here, uh, it's a, uh, it's a probiotic instead of an antibiotic. Okay. Like that helps somebody today. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, okay. I get it now. No, in other words, uh, we're just going to read through some things and equip ourselves and, and be proactive about preparing for life's challenges rather than just reacting to life's challenges and then frantically searching the word of God and going, what am I supposed to do? Um, Because honestly, that's how a lot of people treat the Bible. Like a lot of people use the Bible like the magic eight ball. Did anyone remember the magic eight ball from like the 90s? Remember one of those things? I wasn't allowed to have one because they were demonic and sorcery, but um, you probably had one. Just kidding. No. Uh, But uh, the magic eight ball worked like this. Like if you didn't know what to do with your life, you're like, should I date him? And then you shake the ball and you turn it over and it's like, no, you shouldn't. And you're like, but really, I want to date him. Should I date him? And then you turn it over again until it said what you wanted it to say. Like, I think that's what a lot of people do with the Bible. Like, they wait till things get out of hand or, you know, the situation is out of control. The finances are gone. The marriage is about to fall apart. And then they kind of do the, like, the Bible roulette thing. And they're like, okay, uh, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? And, and, you know, they point at a scripture and, like, that's, you know, what, what God's saying to them. Uh, which, is, which is cool. Um, unless, and this is a true story, like a friend of mine uh, you're in a marriage situation and you're you know, arguing and struggling with your spouse. I mean, he prays this prayer. He says, God, I just don't know what to do. I just, it's, it's really rough. And sometimes I just feel like strangling her and I just don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? So he does the Bible brother thing. And he puts his fingers down and he lands on Ecclesiastes 9.10, which says, uh, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. So that's <laughs> probably not the best advice. True story. I'm not making that up. So Uh, I would rather us be proactive people when it comes to the word of God and people that have our spirits built up and we are prepared and ready for any situation that we find ourselves in. And I'm not against, you know, frantically searching the word of God if we find ourselves in crisis, but there's a better way. And the better way is just be students of the word and read through the Bible every single day and have ourselves prepared for all of life's challenges. So that's what we're going to do with the book of James over the next couple of weeks. And uh, I'll give you a a bit of context on the book, but uh, we are going to call this series Practical Faith, Practical Faith. And that word practical, it simply means uh, to be doing something rather than just to have theory or an idea about it, to actually do something rather than theory or idea. 
Uh, I think there's a lot of people that have theories or ideas about God, uh, but that has not manifested itself in the way that they live their life. And, and really, that's what the book of James is all about. It is a very practical book that talks about what it's supposed to look like when we follow Jesus. It's practical instructions, if you will. Uh, sometimes it's a bit offensive, uh, but it's, it's black and white. It's very simple. And I'm a straightforward kind of dude. Like, I just want you to tell me what I'm supposed to do. I, I don't want to, you know, read between the lines. Just, just tell me what I'm going to do and I'll, and I'll do it. I'm a Band-Aid dude, right? Like, I don't want to just take it off slowly and rip all the hair off my arm. Just let's quick like a Band-Aid and make it happen. Like, that's how the book of James is, all right? It's a quick like a Band-Aid kind of book. So, practical faith. Uh, here is your framework for the book so that we're all on the same page. And then um, I'll get preaching to you. Uh, it is written by... You'll never guess this, a guy named James. And uh, James was the brother of Jesus, which was probably a really rough gig. Like, let's be honest for a moment. Like, how many have siblings? Okay, most of us. Uh, how many get frustrated with your siblings sometimes? Okay, now imagine if Jesus is your sibling, okay? That is a rough gig for sure. Like, you could never get away with anything if Jesus is your sibling. Like, it wasn't me. Jesus did it. No, he didn't. Come on. <laughs> James, don't lie. Not only can you never get away with anything, like, like, imagine this. Like, you didn't do your homework, and you don't want to go to school, and so you, like, lie to your mom, and you're like, I'm just, <coughs> I'm sick. I don't feel good. Jesus just walks by the bedroom. He's like, you're healed. Like, you're just done, you know. Like, you could never... <laughs> Like, think about all the things you did as a kid. You could never get away with it. And you know, mom and dad at some point were like, well, why can't you just be more like your little brother, Jesus, or your big brother, Jesus? Because he's freaking God. That's why I can't be like him, okay? He's so, rough cake. But uh, he wrote a book about it and made it through it, okay? So we're going to read his book. Um, his audience, the book of James is written to a very specific audience, and we'll see that in a moment. Uh, he writes to what he calls the 12 tribes that are scattered across the earth, or scattered abroad. And uh, at this particular time in history, in the book of James, uh, the church was under extreme persecution. Uh, they were growing, people were being added to the church all the time, the gospel was being preached, and miracles were taking place. Uh, but while the church was growing, at the same time, the culture around it was hostily opposed to what the church was doing. Uh, the culture had a different set of standards than the church had. The culture standards said, you know, we are self-serving. A lot of the uh, other gods had like temple prostitutes and uh, there was this uh, idea of Gnosticism where you can do whatever you want to do with your body and it wouldn't affect your spirit. And so people like to indulge in very flesh-driven activities, but the church was opposed to that. The church said, no, it matters what we do to our body and we, we're gonna serve God and we're gonna make the right decision with our morality and we're gonna stay pure. And the culture said, you know, mass as much as you can for yourself and it's all about you, but the church was, wasn't about self-serving. It was giving out to other people. The church was generous and the culture wanted to hoard for themselves. And you saw this contrast between culture and the church. But the predominant reason that there was such prosecution was because the culture at the time was driven and ruled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had a very polytheistic view of things. Hey, believe in whatever God you want. There's many roads up the mountain. It doesn't matter who you believe in. As long as you're a decent person, you know, we're going we're gonna to all get to heaven one day and we'll all be up there partying together. But the church was, was monotheistic. They said, no, there's only one God, and there's only one way to get to the Father, and it's through Jesus. And you can believe what you want to believe about all that, but honestly, this is what the truth says. And the biggest issue the Roman government had with that was the emperor of Rome, Claudius at the time, he felt like he should be included among the gods. 
you know, imagine your president feeling like he should be included among the gods. And I won't say anything else about that. Um, but, and because he felt like he should be included among the gods, the church was a threat to his authority. And so in AD 49, when this book was written, uh, he actually decided to uh, exile all of the Christians from Rome. He said, you're no longer allowed to be here, the Jews, the Christians, all you guys get out of here. And if they found any of them, they, they actually, uh, they, they executed them in some pretty gruesome ways. And you can read through history and figure some of that out. Now, I give you that history lesson, not just so that you have a bit of you know, understanding about the book, but I, I tell you that because I don't want us to just read this book and go, okay, that's cool, that applied to them and their culture, but it really doesn't have much to do with our culture. I think if we look at what was happening in the world in AD 49 and the contrast between church culture and the world, I think that it's probably pretty similar today. Uh, no, no one's kicking us out of our homes and forbidding us from living in San Francisco because we believe in Jesus. But I think that there's a pretty stark contrast between the values of this world and the things that we hold near and dear, the convictions that the Holy Spirit is telling us to live by. Uh, in a culture that is all about amassing more for itself, the Christians are choosing to be generous. In a culture that says there are many roads up the mountain and just follow Oprah and she'll get you there, <laughs> we say, no, there's one true way to the Father and it's Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and no man gets to the Father but through him. In, in, a, in a world that, that seems to want to do whatever it wants to do and indulge the flesh, we restrain ourselves because we understand that what we do on this life matters. What we do on this earth matters and it does have an impact on eternity. And so this is not some archaic book that is inapplicable to our lives. I think that it is exactly the same culture today as it was then. And thus, James's instructions to us bear some weight and, and, and have some application in our current context. And so as we go through this book, I want you to make it very personal. As, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you about areas of your life that maybe are out of alignment, I want you to take responsibility and go, you know what? I need to fix that. I need to adjust that. Not in, you know, in an angry God pointing a finger kind of way, but in the Holy Spirit just saying, hey, in our world, this is how we should be living. Because that's how James addressed the people. He said, hey, in a culture like this, here's how we're supposed to live for Jesus. So I'm going to dive into the first verse here in just a second. Uh, I'll pray here and, and before we do that. But if you're going to take notes, I want to title the sermon today, From Skeptic to Slave. From Skeptic to Slave. Uh, let me pray and we'll get into this. Jesus, we love you this morning. God, I thank you for your presence and worship. It was, it was awesome this morning. Uh, you are clearly here among us. And uh, Father, I pray that as we go to your word, and maybe even some of the content today uh, might be a bit aggressive or this book might, might draw some things out of us that we don't feel comfortable with. Um, I pray that we would be faithful to respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction. God, that we would understand that everything you're doing through this letter and through these sermons is, is by love. It's because you love us and you want to draw us to a closer place with you. You want to you multiply our impact here on our planet. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us today and every week from here on out. And uh, let this content transform us before we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, James chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, I'm not even turning there in my Bible. Hold on. Wait for it. Wait for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's going to be good. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Can you just put it on the screen? Okay, there we go. 
James chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Now, you're expecting me to go to the next verse because you're like, okay, cool. There's not much content there. I'm going to do something crazy today. I'm going to spend our entire time in this introduction sentence today. Like, wow, that sounds pretty boring. I promise it won't be. It's going to be good. Because I think in this introduction sentence, we get a glimpse into the heart of the author of this book. We get to understand who James is and why he's telling us what he's going to tell us in the subsequent verses. And in these subsequent weeks, okay, we'll get into some content. It's going to be great. But I really want to capitalize on his heart because I think if we read this book without understanding the heart of the author, it's going to come across as a bunch of rules and a bunch of regulations and a behavior modification plan, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that we try to transform ourselves so that we can make our way to the Father. The, the, the gospel is that the Father made his way to us and transformed us so that we can draw near to him. So I, I think it's important that we understand what James is talking about before he gets into some of this content. And he starts off the letter by introducing himself as James, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is an interesting introduction to me because, as we know, this was Jesus's brother. If you were Jesus's sibling, you would probably start with that. Like, that's bragging rights, for sure. Like, if I was related to somebody famous, every conversation in every letter would start with that. Like, hey, I'm uh, Tim Affleck, brother of Ben Affleck. You can tell by the jawline, the butt chin. Yeah, that's me. Like, I know what you're thinking, yeah. Like, I would, I would, I would capitalize on the fact that I was related to somebody famous, but, but that's not what James does. He doesn't introduce himself as the brother of Jesus. In fact, he does something quite contrary to that. He says, I am a slave of my brother. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why on earth would you open up a book as the sibling of Jesus calling yourself a slave? And I think to answer that question, we need to dive into this person a little bit deeper. We need, we need to understand a little bit more about who James is and what his life experience was leading up to writing this book. James was not always a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, which is not hard to believe. I mean, if you imagine your sibling trying to convince you that they were God, that's, that's a rough one, right? Like, like, oh, I'm God. No, you sleep on the bunk above me. Like, you're not God. Like, like that, that would be a very difficult task for sure. And so James didn't really believe that his brother Jesus was the chosen Messiah, was the one that was promised. In fact, not only do we know this because it's obvious and it's his brother, but it's actually recorded in scripture that James doubted whether or not his brother was Jesus. Look at what it says uh, in the book of John, chapter seven, verses one through five. It says, after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish uh, festival of shelters and Jesus' brother said to him, ready, this is in a mocking way, Leave here, go to Judea where the followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide yourself like this. I don't know if they talk like that, but this is how I talk. Uh, if you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. So, so James did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was a skeptic. In fact, he was a vocal skeptic. He made it clear that he's like, dude, you're just my brother. You're not Jesus. Like, 
He, it was obvious that James did not believe in him. And again, he had every bit of evidence to suggest otherwise. He grew up with Jesus. Like he was there when Jesus turned water into wine in Cana. He probably heard stories and probably witnessed with his own eyes his brother healing sick people, opening blind eyes, raising the dead. Like he saw or at least heard about some of this stuff. And you know his mom all the time told everybody about the story. And she was a virgin and she was betrothed to, 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 to Joseph and she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit as a virgin with the Messiah. Like she, she had probably told her sons this story. So James had all the evidence to suggest that he should be a follower of Jesus, yet he remained a skeptic. If you ever wonder sometimes why, you know, there's people like, how could you not believe? Like after all that's happened, you got in that car accident and you didn't die. And, you know, you've seen God do some amazing things and your mother was healed. And how could you not believe? Like sometimes that's just how it works. Regardless of the evidence, you remain a skeptic. Yet, obviously something happened to James. Because in John chapter 7, he's a vocal skeptic. Yet in the introduction of his letter, he's a slave of Jesus Christ. So what happened between skeptic and slave? How did he go from skeptic to slave? Well, we get a glimpse of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says this, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers uh, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then ready? Then he was seen by James and later by all of the apostles. So Jesus dies. We know that his mother and some of his followers and likely his brother witnessed his crucifixion, witnessed this gruesome death, but they also probably witnessed the earth shake, the veil being torn, the dead coming up out of their graves. And apparently after Jesus resurrected, he, he made it a special point to stand in front of his brother, so much so that he is called out among the 500 to say he appeared to James. The resurrected Christ showed himself to his brother James. That is the only bit of evidence we get between John chapter 7 and James chapter 1. And I would suggest today that something happened when James saw his resurrected brother that changed the way he thought about Jesus. He saw something that changed everything. No longer was Jesus the guy on the top bunk. No longer was he the carpenter's son. No longer was he just his brother. He was the resurrected Christ. He was the one that defeated death. He was the one that James saw die and now he saw standing right in front of him. This was not story any longer. This was personal. It was very personal to James. It wasn't somebody else told me. He's like, no, I see it for myself now. This isn't somebody else's experience. This is my experience. It's not somebody else's Lord. He is Jesus, my Lord and Savior. He saw something different in that moment than he'd ever seen before. And you might think, well, that's great that James saw that. And, and, and he had that moment, but 
I'm not quite sure what the parallel is. How, how does that apply to me? Well, let's be real. I think that today in the room, there are probably varying levels of skepticism when it comes to Jesus. Sure, you might know him as, as Savior and he might be a follower of Jesus, but maybe there's some areas of doubt in your heart when it comes to the healer or the provider or the restorer or the one who brings joy instead of sadness, the one who can set you free from that addiction that you've been struggling with for years, the one who can bring a husband and wife back together after a decade of fighting. Like, maybe you don't know that side of Jesus. I, I think that if we're honest, we all have varying levels of doubt when it comes to God. And I might sound weird saying that because I'm a pastor and I shouldn't. But it's something, it's interesting that some things in life that happen to us make us question, okay, but, but is God really able to deal with this? I've read about it, I've heard about it, but sometimes those stories just aren't enough. I'm just not seeing it with my own eyes. See, Jesus is a lot of things to a lot of people. For some, he's a fictional character that the weak people in this world need to use as a crutch. For others, he was a historical figure that did good. For still others, maybe he was a prophet. Even other religions acknowledge that Jesus might have been a prophet. To some, he's the savior. To some, he's the provider. To some, he's the healer. But varying levels, all based, I think if we're honest, on one word. And that is experience. I think all of us feel differently about Jesus because of what we've experienced. Whether we'd care to admit it or not, whether we'd confess it or not, often our beliefs are based on our experience. Not necessarily scripture, not what we read, not what we've heard. It's based on our experience. And if my experience tells me I prayed for somebody to be healed and they weren't healed, then I don't think Jesus is a healer. And if my experience tells me that somebody gave me a prophetic word and it never happened, then prophecy must be something that died with the rest of the apostles. If someone tells me that God's going to provide for me and I still haven't gotten the job, then I have a hard time seeing God as a provider because that has not been my experience. Or, or let's make it personal because I know that this affects many of us in the room. Maybe you had a bad church experience. Maybe you came from a place where the pastor let you down and someone embezzled money and things didn't work out the way they told you it would. And so the church, the bride, the very thing that Jesus gave his life for has put a bad taste in your mouth. And you sit in church even today and you just audit to figure out, okay, when are they gonna let me down? When is this thing gonna fall apart? It looks good now, but it's only a matter of time before this thing blows up. They all do. That guy up there talking about money, they just want your money at the church. Bad experience leads to bad theology <laughs> because most of us believe what we've seen. Our beliefs are based on our experience. Um, I grew up in church for most of my life and uh, I, I have amazing parents that taught me the Bible and uh, I, I don't mean to badmouth any church or any church experience at all. So that's my disclaimer for what I'm about to say. But I grew up in a church where I, I knew who God was, but I never really experienced his power. He was 
kind of the angry God that I had to sort of find a way to prove myself to or appease, but I never really experienced the power of God. I remember more often praying for comfort than I did healing. Oh, God, comfort the person who's sick, and I pray that they wouldn't feel any pain during the chemotherapy. Like, that's, that's the kind of stuff I remember growing up hearing. And uh, I remember one particular youth service. Uh, I was sitting in the, the back of the room with a bunch of my friends because I was hanging on by a thread with Jesus, barely saved. Um, this is where people sit in the back. I'm just kidding. No, uh, <laughs> uh, But uh, in the middle of worship, this one girl that I brought with us, uh, her name was Emery. Uh, she, was, she was singing and she was praying. And in the middle of worship, she just started singing and praying in tongues. And I'd never heard anything like that before. She just started going for it. And it wasn't like obtrusive. It wasn't, you know, distracting for anybody. She was kind of under, under her breath, just praying and singing in tongues. And I looked over and I'm like, devil, you know, like what is happening? Never heard anything like that before. And I remember a couple of youth leaders quickly finding their way over to her and removing her from the congregation. She's brand new. Like, this just happened in service. She's not, she had no framework for it. It was obviously the Holy Spirit. But they removed her and reprimanded her for, for doing such a thing in the assembly and explained why that was not for today. So that was my experience. And you know what that experience did? It shaped my beliefs. That experience led me to believe, well, God doesn't do stuff like that. That's, that's, that's the devil. That stuff's long gone. We can read about it, the stories of it in the Bible, but that doesn't happen anymore. But all of that changed when I was 19 years old, and suddenly I had a different experience. I found myself in Seattle, Washington at a conference with a bunch of other students, and in the middle of a worship set, somebody got up to the front, like my wife did today, and they began to share that God was still a healer. And they said, if there's anybody in the room who's sick in your body and you believe that God can heal you today, I want you to come up here. We're going to pray for you. There was no hype. It was not manipulation. It was very simple and a lot of faith attached to it. People came forward and they received prayer. And then they had to, people began to give testimonies. And this one girl got up and she said, here's my, here's my identification card. It says that I'm legally blind. And somehow today, as someone prayed for me, God restored all my sight. And she began to read from the other side of the room letters and words that people were putting up. And this other guy gets up and he said, I, I walked in here today with a, with a cast on. I hurt myself during football. And he ripped it off and he started running around the stage. And I'm like, this is the stuff I saw on TV that I thought was fake. Like, this is happening right before my eyes. And I'm like, wide-eyed looking at God move in the lives of these people. The end of the service, I said, is there anyone here who wants to rededicate their life to Jesus? And I lifted my hand. And as they used to do back in the day, they scooted us off to a room in the side, which we don't do that here, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but as they prayed for us, I said, hey, um, we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by praying in tongues. And if you want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit here today, we want to pray for you. And in that moment, that, that scenario in the back of my youth ministry was running through my head. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't, feel like it's, but I, okay, God. And man, in one moment, my theology changed. Why? Because I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I began to pray in a language that I did not understand. Someone prayed for me, and I did the weird thing that, you know, we all criticize, but it happened to me. And that was I fell on the floor in a heap, and I had this 30-minute open vision of my life and saw myself doing what I'm doing now instead of doing what I was doing then. And it was crazy supernatural stuff. Stuff that if you asked me a week prior, I would say, that doesn't happen. God doesn't work like that. That's not what's supposed to go down in church. But man, my theology changed. Why? Because I experienced something 
that challenged where I was living. My beliefs had to bow down to what I had now seen. I believe that every single one of us need to have those sorts of moments in our life with Jesus where suddenly all of our bad theology has to bow down to seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Because listen, when you see Jesus for who he truly is and when you have these kinds of experiences, it will change the way you live your life. That moment changed my prayer life. It changed the way I approached the word of God. It changed the way I prayed for people. It changed the way I saw church and what God can do in the assembly of other believers. Like, it changed everything for me. Why? Because I saw something different. And and that is exactly the same thing that happened to James. He, He saw something different and his brother standing before him. It was no longer the guy that he grew up with. It was no longer the son that was born to the Virgin Mary. Like, he saw Jesus for who he truly was, the resurrected king. And when you see Jesus for who he is, it will change the way you live your life. Let me say it like this. This is good for you note takers. Revelation requires a response. When Jesus reveals himself to you for real, there is a warranted response. It elicits a response from us because when we see him, we want to become more like him. And so when when James saw Jesus, what was his response? It was no longer, I'm James. I'm Jesus' brother. It was, I'm James, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. His response was, man, now that I've seen you, I want to become your slave. For him, seeing Jesus meant now he had to serve Jesus. And let me explain that word for just a moment because I think if we can understand what James is saying in this first sentence, we can understand the heart behind the entirety of this book. Because when we think slavery, we immediately go to forced labor and somebody who's being asked to do things they don't want to do, right? Like that's, that's what we think. But that's not the kind of slavery that James is referring to in this scripture. In fact, he uses the word doulos in the Greek, and the word doulos in the Greek, it means bond servant, It's not somebody who is being forced to do something they don't want to do. It's not a slave that's been captured and and is now in forced labor. It's a willing slave. In fact, in Bible times, it was referred to as a love slave. And and here's how it went down. Uh, In Jewish law and in Jewish culture, uh, if somebody was... Uh, if somebody was enslaved for whatever reason, uh, there was a time limit on that sentence. No one could be a slave for more than six years. And in the seventh year, regardless of where you came from, regardless of how you got there, you were to be set free. That was built into the Jewish law. And once you were set free, you could no longer be forced again back into slavery. But there was, there was a loophole. And the loophole had to do for slaves who decided that they loved their masters so much that they wanted to stay in relationship with that master and they chose a life of slavery. 
Uh, you'll see it in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I'll turn there in my Bible now that I finally know where I'm at in the Bible here. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 15, uh, verse 16. It says, but suppose your servant says, I won't leave you because he loves you and your family and he's done well with you. In that case, take an all, push it through his earlobe into the door. After that, he will be your servant for life. So get this picture. After the end of the sentence, the slave says, you know what? There's no way my life could be any better than if I served you. I love you so much. I've seen how much better my life is as a result of being submitted to you. And I don't want to go. I don't want to go back out there and try to do things on my own and try to figure this thing out by myself. No, I love you so much that I want to commit the rest of my life to doing whatever it is that you ask me to do. And so in love, the slave would put his ear up against a doorpost. <laughs> like a pirate now. <laughs> and and he, would, he would allow the master to run a nail through his earlobe and, and after the nail was run through his earlobe, that earring that was left in his ear or her ear would serve as a reminder to them and as an outward sign to everybody who looked and said, man, you really do love your master. Their actions were not something the master forced them to do. No, their actions were a response to the love for their master. See, listen, when we understand what James is saying in this scripture, I'll take this out because some of you can't be serious anymore. Okay, we understand what James is saying as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get his heart, which allows us to understand the remainder of this book. This is not some guy saying, you better follow these rules. You better live this way. If you were really a Christian, this is what you would do. This is a guy who's saying, I am so in love with Jesus that it has changed the way I live my life. I don't want to do things the way I used to do things. No, this love has brought me to a place of submitting myself to the master and saying, your will be done. Whatever you ask of me, you have my yes. And not because you're forcing me, but because I choose to live this way. It is a life that is bound to love. Perhaps this is why Jesus says over and over and over and over again in his teachings that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Not because we're trying to prove our love for God by obedience, but because love compels us to live a different way. This should not be a surprise. If you're in a relationship or you're married to somebody today, like you're already living this out in the natural. Like I've been married for 15 years. We're going to celebrate 15 years in May. And I said, thank you. Um, I, I, on my wedding day, I, I, I said yes to some rules for marriage, right? Like, hey, in sickness and in health, uh, in, in richer or in poorer, forsaking all others, I give myself to you until death do us part. Like, you know, there's a list of rules that I agreed to when I, when I said I loved my wife. But I've never had to go back to those rules to remind myself to do the right thing in marriage. Like when she's sick, I'm not like, this is terrible. I want to go. Oh, but you know, it says right here, in sickness and in health, you overspent again on the grocery budget. Like 
We are broke in the grocery department. Are you kidding me? Oh, well, I said for richer or for poorer. No. I've never had to stop myself from having an affair with another person because I looked at the rules. My heart was committed to her. I made a decision that, hey, whatever life looks like, I'm going to live by this set of standards because I love you so much that it is my natural response to keep myself from other people, to not complain when you're sick and you don't want to make out. Come on, I made a commitment to live by this set of standards. This is what we do when we are in love. <laughs> that was for some husband somewhere, like, oh yeah, it's true. It's actually me, I'm a germaphobe. I don't wanna make out when people are sick, all right? That's weird. Or not people, just you. Okay, just to be clear, all right. But this is what love does. Love responds by saying, it's gonna change the way I live my life. When I said yes on my wedding day, it changed the way I live my life. And when you say yes to Jesus, when you see him for who he is, it'll change the way you live your life. So listen, in the subsequent weeks, when we start going through some of this content and we read things like, faith without works is dead, Hey, you, you got to watch what you say. You got to keep control of the tongue because, man, it, it can set some stuff on fire. You better overcome temptation, which I'm going to talk about next week. When we read these things, we cannot see them from a controlling author that's telling us to change the way we behave so that we can prove our love for Jesus. What we need to see is somebody that's saying, man, I love Jesus so much and you love Jesus so much, that in a broken world that embraces a different set of standards, this is how we should live because of our love for him. And, and let us not forget that the very same God who issues the invitation to lay our earlobe against a doorpost and to allow an all to be hammered through our flesh as a spiritual sign that we are all his and that we wanna serve our master Let's not forget that he did the exact same thing for us. That he laid his flesh against a couple of beams and he allowed nails to be driven through him and his blood and the scars on his hands served as proof that he loved us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he is not asking you to do something that he has not already done himself. Everything is a response to the love that has already been displayed for us. Amen? amen? Come on, amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.